A very good morning and welcome to this morning's Euracta virtual conference on the Recovery and Resilience Facility. Today we will be asking, can effective oversight bring about true reform? And today's event is supported by Recover Portugal, so expect lots of concrete examples dealing with that country as we talk about what needs to happen as these resilience funds come out, these recovery funds come out to help the different member states recover from the pandemic. Now, as always, you can follow us along on social media using the hashtag EA Debates and of course you can use the Q&A function to put your questions to our panellists. Please do indicate which panellist your question is directed towards or if it's to all of them please put that as well and there's also a chat function where you can say hello to your fellow audience members but keep the Q&A for our panellists. We have a great lineup for you today so without any further ado I will introduce you to Luc Thonaliat, who is the Director for the Economies of the Member States in DG Economic and Finance Affairs at the European Commission. His colleague, also from the European Commission, Nathalie Berger, is Director of Support to Member State Reforms, and that's within DG Reform. We also have joining us Ivana Maletic, who is a member of the Chamber for of Regulations of Markets and Competitive Economy at the European Court of Auditors. Eulalia Rubio is the Senior Research Fellow at the Jacques Delors Institute. And last but not least, Anna Costilla's spokesperson for Recover Portugal. Thank you all very much for joining me today. I'm looking forward to hearing your thoughts and a lively discussion that I hope will uh, will bring in all the various viewpoints from the stakeholders here today, as well as, of course, our audience. I am opening up our Q&A function. So although you haven't heard the opening statements yet, feel free to listen and pay attention because you can base some of your questions on that. With that, I will have uh, a round of opening statements from each of our panellists. I'm going to start, Luke, first with you. The floor is yours. Uh, good morning, Jennifer. Good morning, everyone. Thanks for having me. And uh, by way of introduction to, to our discussion, I would like to put forward the three initial propositions for the sake of discussion. Uh, first, I think it's important to approach the recovery and resilience facility for what it is. Uh, an instrument which is here to promote the recovery uh, and the resilience of the economies of the member states. And in so doing, the facility complements a, a very important set of economic support and crisis management measures that have been taken over the last 15 months by the EU and the member states. All of this constitutes an unprecedented economic response to what has been an unprecedented economic crisis. Uh, my second proposition is, is to make sure that in our discussion we, we bear in mind the unique features of the facility. Uh, its size, it varies a lot across countries, but overall uh, it, is, uh, it has a potential of close to 5% of EU GDP. Uh, its scope, this is an instrument which cover, covers both reforms and investment, and this is uh, very new. The nature of its financing. Uh, both loans and grants. Again, this is a new development at your level. And last but not least, and I'm sure we'll come back to that, uh, the delivery mode. The fact that this is a performance-based instrument uh, where disbursements will be linked to the achievement of results, not just costs. Uh, this is profoundly new at your level. My third uh, and last proposition is to say that uh, the fact that VRF is a new instrument certainly creates new challenges in terms of implementation, uh, but it is important to highlight and bear in mind the fact that the RRF regulation provides for very important safeguards 
to ensure that uh, there will be an effective and sound management of the RF. And in the implementation, we can also count on well-established partnerships between EU institutions and together with member states to make it work. So this would be my initial first ideas, and I very much look forward to our discussion. Thank you. Thank you very much. Natalie, let me come to you. You're also at the Commission, but working in a slightly different way. So tell me what it is the, from your perspective that is important about today's discussion. Thank you very much, Jennifer. And I think I will embark on uh, Luke's introductory uh, comments. And I, I would like to uh, show the interaction uh, with the work that we're doing in the structural reform uh, support director general. So first to quote my, my commissioner, Commissioner Ferreira, Growth enhancing reforms are a precondition for sustainable and inclusive growth. Investment alone is not enough to adapt to a rapidly changing world. Our administrations and frameworks also need to be constantly strengthened and modernized. It is our goal not to leave anyone behind. I think here we have several very powerful concepts. We need to have a recovery that is going to be inclusive. So every region, every actor in the European Union should be able to benefit from that recovery. And in that respect, we do support member states through what we call the technical support instrument by strengthening their administrative capacity to design and implement structural reforms and address the underlying social and economic weaknesses in their economies. And we can support a lot, a very range, wide range of reforms. I can give you a few examples, like uh, strengthening policy development and foresight civil service in Ireland, introducing artificial intelligence in investment and trade in Belgium, strengthening the judicial system, thus enhancing the efficiency and effectiveness of the courts in Cyprus, developing a transport and mobility master plan in Estonia, or helping to establish a new research network in Poland. And we can intervene in support to the member states' recovery and resilience plans for their preparation, for their implementation. We have also very recently published a second call uh, for the member states to present their proposed measures and reforms and they have the possibility until the 4th of June to select and present a few projects to obtain some additional support from the technical support instrument. Of course, all this is work that we do hand in hand. So we try to support, for example, Luke's colleagues uh, for the implementation of the National Recovery and Resilience Plans. I think if we have to say one word to describe all of this, we will only succeed by working all hand in hand, all institutions and together with the member states and all actors concerned in the member states. Thank you, Jennifer. Thank you very much. Um, I appreciate your giving those concrete examples. We really do love to hear those. And perhaps we'll come back a little bit more and, and talk about how those are chosen. Um, Ivana, let me turn to you. Give us your perspective, your opening thoughts this morning. 
thank you very much. Good morning, everybody. I'm very happy to be with you today. And uh, in the European Court of Auditors, I was responsible for the opinion on recovery and resilience facility regulation. I'm also now responsible for the for the audit uh, for um, uh, for uh, commission assessment of the national uh, recovery and resilience uh, plans. Uh, so, um, in the Court of Auditors, we also prepared many uh, opinions on the regulations for other instruments under Next Generation EU and very interesting review on COVID-19 economic policy response. Uh, I completely agree with uh, my colleagues from the Commission that RRF is a very unique instrument, a uh, very important and necessary European response to the huge health and economic crisis. It is definitely an expression of our unity and solidarity and shows that in the crisis time we can act together and overcome the challenges and achieve more. And this is really what we are all hoping for. We hope that RRF will be our success story. However, in the opinion, we of course highlighted some of the weaknesses in the regulation and challenges for the implementation and monitoring of RRF. Uh, for example, uh, we said that uh, the scope and objectives of the RRF, uh, as Luke actually said, they are very broad and uh, uh, they also partially overlap with other EU funding instruments. On one hand, uh, uh, this can be an advantage uh, in terms of complementarity and synergy, but also, also this increases the risk of double funding and competition between different programs. This is why we also highlighted the um, absorption capacity and need to improve uh, absorption because uh, we, we all see uh, that uh, even in this perspective, 2014-20 previous perspective, many countries had difficulties to absorb uh, available funds and now some of them will get even double uh, funding and they have to, of course, deal with that and they have to really spend it in a, in a proper way, uh, but also very quickly uh, that our citizens see uh, the fruits uh, of, the, of the European funding as soon as possible. Uh, so, but of course, we will have uh, time to discuss all this uh, and I, I cannot now present everything what we uh, uh, highlighted in our opinion, but during the debate, I'm sure that we will have more time. So thank you very much, uh, and I'm looking forward to your questions. Thank you very much, Ivana. Yes, we are looking forward as well to hearing your responses. Indeed, we will have the next hour uh, still to go with more conversations and discussions. But Ilalia, let me turn to you. Um, tell us about your research and uh, your background on this. Thank you, Jennifer, and, uh, and thanks to all of you, or, and good morning to all of you. Just, uh, I mean, as a general statement, maybe I will repeat a bit the, what the other panelists have said, but I think it's important to stress that uh, the RRF is really new in many dimensions, and particularly we try to do two things that uh, are totally new. One is this, this idea of coupling investment with reforms, and the other is the, the delivery system, as Lucas said, to to change from a delivery system that normally the monitoring of EU's fund has been based on, 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 on more control, more reporting and rules compliant, and now we switch to a system that is basically based on performance. And the two directions, coupling investment with reforms and uh, going towards a more performance-oriented system, are very welcome. I think it's 
two things that uh, were already in the debate and we tried in the past to align more, for instance, structural funding with uh, country-specific recommendations under the European semester. We try also to simplify the rules for structural funding and to put more performance-oriented uh, approach in uh, structural funding. So two things are very good, but we are doing it in a very radical way and in a very short way and with a lot of money. So that just, I mean, what I wanted to stress as a first statement is that we are in front of a large-scale experiment that's very good, but we have to also be open to understand that everything will not go as we expect. And as any experiment, there will be some failures, there will be some unexpected events. So I think it's very important. I mean, for the moment, we are quite happy. I think everybody has the perception that the plans are quite good. But now in the implementation phase, we have to be aware that uh, as much as the Commission will do things right, there will be some failures. And what is important is to have a bit of flexibility, a bit of capacity to readjust and to set uh, ambitious but also realistic expectations on the results. And then uh, in, the, in the debate, we can enter into detail about uh, more specific things that we can we can also we can also do. I think the regulation is is very good, but there are things that have to be maybe done to complement this regulation. And I can work and, and I can talk later on, on on the question of how to prevent fraud. I think that we need a different approach to to prevent and identify fraud uh, for the for the facility, which is not all uh, integrated in the in the regulation. So I stop here, and then we can we can discuss uh, in more detail. Absolutely. Anna, let me come to you. Give us your opening thoughts to frame how you see this debate. Yes, hello. Uh, good morning, everyone. Uh, I'm Anna Costillas, and I'm here today in representation of Recover Portugal, which, um, if you don't know, is a group of uh, EU institutional investors uh, whose assets um, were expropriated by the Portuguese government back in 2015 uh, in the Banco Espiritu Santo Novo Banco case. Um, for the last six years, we have been seeking legal redress in the Portuguese courts, but their judicial system is completely politicized, and to date, unfortunately, we do not have any indication on when this case will be solved. The full details, uh, I will not go now here, but they are all available in, in our website, recordportugal.eu. Um, as regards the, the next generation EU, we are obviously fully supportive, and we are fully supportive of the uh, RRF as a way to recover the EU economy after the pandemic. But as well, we as investors, we would like to recover the over 2 billion euros which were unduly taken from us, as well as to ensure that before investing in future RRF bonds, our rights will be protected too. In fact, as you all know, a significant part of the RRF funds will be raised in international markets and for us, it's imperative that investors' rights will be protected if the EU wants to sell those bonds at market prices. The rule of law should prevail across the EU, and both domestic and foreign investors should be treated by the host member state fairly and without being discriminated, so that we ensure a level playing field across the EU, and that legal proceedings should be dealt with in a timely manner. Otherwise, investors will have less, less incentives to invest, not only on Portugal, but on EU-wide bonds. There have been many recommendations and reports highlighting the shortcomings uh, of Portuguese judiciary um, systems. And in fact, 
in their own uh, proposal for the RRF plan, they do propose to finance the digitalization of their administrative and tax judiciary systems. We believe, though, that there has to be a conditionality factor here and that prior to the approval of the Portuguese plan, it is in the interest of the EU to request to the Portuguese government enough warranties to solve the best Novo Banco cases as soon as possible. This is a signal that many investors are waiting for. We also believe that overall, the RRF funds have to be rightly spent in accordance with their country-specific recommendations and their national plans. And the European Parliament, the Court of Auditors, the EPO and the other institutions should be involved in their oversight to avoid any mismanagement and corruption practices, which will secure through structural reforms which are so needed. Thank you. Thank you, Anna, uh, going into some detail there. Um, Luke, let me, me pick up on some points that the various opening statements have raised. Um, now, there's a huge amount, a significant, unprecedented amount of money available. It's 672.5 billion euros. Uh, that's innovative financing. And, and, but it is going to be deployed over quite a short period of time. It's six years. This is, if you like, crisis funding. So I wonder how can that be tied with fundamental reform, which usually takes place at a slower pace? Yeah, thanks, Anifa. Uh, six years it, it is a, both a very long and a very short time, depending on how you look at it. Uh, for a number of investment projects, six years is not that long uh, before delivering on the project and actually seeing the results on the ground. For a number of reforms, on the other hand, you could hope and, and move uh, faster. So um, the reality of, of what is at, at stake uh, will depend very much on the type of measures but also very much on the countries. We discussed uh, the fact that the amounts will vary a lot according to countries. And you mentioned the overall potential of 672.5 billion. This is including the full amount of grants plus loans. Uh, at this stage, it is not such that all member states will choose the loans. The loans will remain a possibility, but in the first phase, not every country will choose to tap uh, their full loan envelope. So we, we'll have to see, as you may know, uh, 18 uh, countries have presented their plans uh, so far. More will come in the coming days or weeks. Uh, so we will, don't have a full overview just yet, uh, but that will be a case-by-case -case, uh, assessment. I think the regulation is, is, is very helpful in uh, steering the right type of reforms and investments. As was mentioned by uh, my colleagues on the panel, uh, the fact that the regulation refers to the country-specific recommendations that were adopted in the past is very important because it shows that we will build on a shared diagnosis of what needs to be done, so we're not starting from scratch. Uh, likewise, uh, the regulation sets very important targets for green uh, and for digital objectives, uh, respectively 37% of the funds and 20% of the fund. It also ensures the respect of a do not significant harm principle from an environmental point of view. And, and this raises uh, the ambition across uh, the board. So uh, there are, I would say, there, there's an initial direction given by the regulation. And, and uh, also the fact that uh, the reforms and investments have been, in a way, designed bottom up through the member states in dialogue with the Commission is also a guarantee of ownership and hopefully of success. So, uh, of course, the jury is out. We're just at the starting phase, but I would say the initial impulse is a positive one. 
Well, Natalie, similar sort of question to you, and I noticed you taking down various notes during Anna's intervention as well. Give me your thoughts on whether the speed, as, as, as Luke says, it's long and short, depending on how you look at it, but six years is, is, is a short enough amount of time if we want to see fundamental structural reforms. Well, it is, uh, it is a short amount of time, but at the same time, I really believe that with all the efforts that are being organized by the Commission and within the member states and the context that we're having within member states, we are going to make it work. Um, look at what has been put in place within a few months. I mean, take just the example of vaccinations. Usually to develop a vaccine, you need up to 10 years. Now we have been able to put in place a vaccine in less than one year and we're advancing very well in vaccination in the European Union. So this is advancing well. Uh, we have had the Commission putting forward the proposal for the recovery and resilience facility, the co-legislators adopting it at incredible speed. On our side, we are used to supporting uh, reforms in the member states and we can see that where there is really a willingness of all and a constructive attitude, uh, all can become possible. So I do believe that this will be possible. And I think that precisely what was uh, mentioned beforehand, uh, the idea of the milestones and targets and the performance related uh, um, implementation of the RRF is, is going to be extremely helpful in that regard. Well, just a quick follow-up question, Natalie, drawing on what Eulalia said, and she seemed to be ind indicating that we need flexibility, mm. but that there will be some failures. Is there a sense in which some of these failures, as they may be called, are predictable? I mean, how can you do forward planning when, when everything is, is moving in flux? As, as Luke pointed out as well, we don't even have all the plans yet. Well... <laughs> I would I would come to you with a, with a question. I mean, what do you need? What do you mean exactly with with failures? And I think that uh, precisely the way that everything is framed does avoid the failures. Uh, I give you the example of the measures that we can support, the structural reforms that we can support with the technical support instrument, uh, which complements the efforts of the recovery and resilience facility and can. Uh, assist the member states for the implementation of the plans, we provide directly the support to the member states. We do not give money, we do not give a partial financing. So all the uh, concerns that have been expressed in the past with the use of European funds uh, could be alleviated. And uh, I have very well heard the reference to the risk of double funding. I'm not going to enter into many operational details, but we have put in place all the measures in order to avoid uh, that there be any risk of double funding. So I do believe that we, of course, will need to remain vigilant. In the European Commission, we are very vigilant. We work really collectively in a team. We exchange information, we exchange responsibilities, we exchange tasks. And so I do believe that. Uh, there may be, of course, here and there a minor uh, hiccup happening. It would not be uh, rational to pretend that there is absolutely no risk of anything, but I do not believe that uh, we can see a risk of major failures. Well, Ulalia, then uh, you raised this issue. Let me come back to you to answer the question there that Natalie just put. 
Yeah, I think I do not think there will be major failures. There will be uh, unexpected events, and there will be some plans, for instance, that will have some delay. There will be some reforms that will not occur at the time that were expected. So, of course, they will have some milestones not fulfilled. So that's why uh, what I refer by failures, not major failures, but of course, uh, we have to be prepared that everything will not go as expected. And of course, the regulation has already the, the, the instruments to respond to that. There is an article, for instance, that, that allow the Commission and the member state to readjust the program. Imagine, for instance, if there is a change of government in one member state, and they, they want to change the, 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 the composition of reforms they have put forward in the plan. So these, these types of things are referred as, as failures or as, as unexpected events. I think we need a, a bit of flexibility to adjust to these unexpected events or to delays in implementation that might happen uh, in the, during the, the execution of the facility. Great. Well, well, one of the areas that we want to talk about today is the rule of law specifically, because in, in the Council Summit last July, they agreed that the recovery funds would be attached to rule of law, and it was a long road to get there. How important, uh, Ivania, do you think that is? And I mean, and is this one area where there is a possible cause for concern with certain states? Yes, definitely. So this is uh, something that we discussed uh, at the beginning in relation to ESI funds and any other fundings from the European budget. And now, of course, with recovery and resilience facility, this is also uh, on the table. And um, uh, with rule of law, uh, we, we, we actually also, in a way, ensure a level playing field uh, all over the Europe. And uh, it, it is very important if you are not following the treaty obligations and some fundamental uh, uh, obligations, uh, then uh, uh, it is fair and just that you don't benefit from the from the from the funds. And also, there is a huge risk uh, that that country will not actually use it. Uh, in in a proper way, uh, in a legal and regular way. So this is definitely something what we can, what we have to 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 to, to um, uh, stick to. Uh, but always with all conditionalities, uh, we, we we have to be uh, cautious in a way that we don't want uh, to block uh, uh, the implementation of the, of the funds at the same time. Now I'm not talking only about rule of law, but any other conditionality. So one has to uh, strike right balance uh, between uh, uh, what has to be achieved and uh, conditions uh, under which uh, this has to be done. And of course, for some uh, con conditionalities, uh, we, we, we cannot argue, we cannot, uh, we, we cannot actually uh, do step back and uh, something is uh, definitely must and the rule of law is one of these. Um, and uh, I will just uh, reflect a little bit on uh, on reforms so uh, rule of law is also connected of the reforms of judiciary system for example so as you said many many reforms are uh, actually long lasting and uh, for some we are saying that uh, there are always like uh, uh, going on reforms all the time like public sector reform uh, but uh, at least with the recovery and resilience fund uh, we have opportunity to see big uh, changes and steps ahead and this is what we want to achieve of course that uh, some 
reforms uh, which are long-lasting and ongoing uh, will not finish with recovery and resilience fund. They will continue, but at least we will see changes in, 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 in a positive way. Well, that is certainly the aspiration to see change that is positive. Um, Anna, let me ask you regarding the rule of law. Is, do you think this is one of the major conditionalities? Is it the most important area that we have to think about? Um, yes, definitely. And uh, I, I, was I was listening to, to Ivana quite um, carefully and, and quite pleased to, to, to hear her comments. Um, for, for us, and I think generally in every um, in, an, in every democratic uh, uh, country or region, uh, the rule of law uh, it's of paramount importance, as well as the independence of justice. And unfortunately, um, we've been suffering from a highly politicized uh, judicial system in Portugal. And um, quite recently, in fact, there's been two political groups in the European Parliament, uh, the EPP and the Renew Europe group. Uh, complaining just about the Portuguese process for appointing the Apple uh, candidate for prosecutor. And this illustrates how, um, how politicized the system is. Um, so uh, for us, it's, it's, um, it's, it's quite good that member states might want to spend money on digitalization of the judicial system and uh, bringing IT, um, you know, upgrading, the, upgrading their IT facilities, um, and, and accelerating cases, but uh, they need to first of all look into past cases that have been unsolved and have been blocked for political reasons. This does not play well in Europe uh, and does not play well on the EU and, and, and overall on the whole project. I think um, it's important to, for the Commission and other institutions to put pressure on, um, on member states to to actually solve these cases. It's just uh, in 2021, it's a bit unacceptable that investors have been expropriated in such a manner uh, without any solution so far. Thank you, Anna. Um, I, I'm going to come on to Luca a little bit about investment in just a moment. But Natalie, let me ask you, um, I'm seeing a lot of questions come in as well from our audience already. We will start taking those in a moment. Um, but Natalie, how will the Commission enforce respect for the rule of law in errant member states? I mean, what are the instruments that you can really use? Well, thank you, Jennifer. I think this is an excellent question. And I think I would like to start by giving an example of reforms that we have been uh, able to uh, uh, convey successfully in application of the rule of law. And uh, just to give you a fantastic achievement of last week, uh, where there has been a major reform undertaken in Cyprus, uh, by the uh, Supreme Court to enhance the efficiency and the uh, effectiveness of uh, their rule of procedure for civil law. So we do here in DG support have the possibility to bring forward a lot of support to the member state who wish to undertake meaningful reforms uh, through uh, the uh, rule of law and for the implementation of the rule of law and rule of law report. Uh, now, turning to where things go less well, well, I do believe that uh, Commissioner Reinders and other commissioners uh, do have uh, very important tools in order to ensure um, enforcement of the rule of law. And we have seen it uh, in recent debates that uh, there were some voices raised uh, regarding actions to be undertaken in the member states. 
I do believe that uh, within the implementation of the recovery and resilience facility, there will be possibilities uh, for the Commission to act on its support, on its financial support, uh, should the rule of law not be respected. Thank you. Um Look, let me ask you then um, a little bit of uh, another follow-up question there regarding uh, distribution of funds. I have a question here coming in from one of our audience members saying, um, sorry, I just moved again. Sorry. What are the possibilities to have a score system perhaps to measure the outcome of reforms or a clawback recourse procedure? Just in case things go wrong, Javier Aras asking that, do you expect to have these things? Sorry, Luke, I think that, that possibly a question for you, or, or maybe Natalie, but uh, Luke, if you want to have a stab at it first. I mean, I think there's a lot of potential instruments, but I think these are just two that, uh, that Javier is raising. Okay, thanks. Maybe I have a go, and uh, Natalie, please come in. Um, yeah, no, th thanks for that. Uh, the, the way the RF is constructed is indeed uh, based on the definition ex ante of a number of milestones and targets. Uh, which should exemplify the results uh, that uh, the RF should achieve in different countries. We discussed the six-year implementation period. Obviously, and Alalia is very right, it is difficult to foresee six years in advance what you want to do. It is difficult for any organization, uh, and it is very much also in this case of a huge economic uncertainty post-crisis, but also huge transformation of the growth model that we want to achieve, in particular the green and digital transition. So we are aware of the uncertainty and difficulty of exercise, and this is why we have engaged very hands-on with the member states to help define these uh, milestones and targets. These would be, if you wish, the benchmark uh, in terms of uh, achievements, uh, and there is indeed the possibility to amend uh, over time, depending on how things happen, and there are flexibilities foreseen in the regulation. Uh, by the way, and Ivana mentioned it as well, uh, the opinion of the Court of Auditors on the RRF, which was uh, very relevant and topical uh, last autumn, was also very much a benchmark for the finalization of the regulation. And the regulation uh, benefited a lot from the, the initial ideas of the Court, and, and this is also how it was improved to such an extent that we are able to face a number of challenges. For the delivery of the facility itself, there would be a number of monitoring uh, scoreboard instruments uh, set up, which will allow to uh, report on progress. Member states will also be invited to report regularly. So there is a monitoring system in place. Uh, if there are major problems uh, in the sense of irregularities, we may come to the question of, of fraud. Uh, as we know, we, we have a zero tolerance for fraud, but we need to be equipped to prevent and correct cases of irregularities. There is also the possibilities, uh, like for the UFONS, to recover uh, part of, of, of the money. Uh, but of course, that, that is an extreme situation. And uh, everything we're trying to do is to have very robust internal control system at national level, together with the Commission, uh, to, to make sure that uh, there is a sound management from the start. Stop here. Thank you. Um, Ulalia, I think you wanted to come in a little bit on rule of law as well. Yeah, just to say something on that, I mean, we have this new rule of law mechanism, as Ivan has said, but it's important also to highlight that in the, the negotiation in the, in the latest compromise on the rule of law mechanism, 
it was added this, this question that the rule of law mechanism it will be a last resort instrument, meaning that we will use it when we will not have other provisions in the sectoral regulations to, to make use of it, to, to, to react to cases of, of rule of law, uh, breaches of rule of law. And in this respect, I think in the facility, one thing that uh, I think it's a bit missing is that we don't have a general provision for recoveries. I mean, it is said that the commission will be authorized to recover money in case uh, there are irregularities that have not been corrected by the member state. But there is no specific provision in the regulation and the authorization is left to the budgetary agreements that the commission will sign with each member state. Now, that, that can be uh, seen as a good thing or as a bad thing, a good thing because maybe we'll have more details in, 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 in the specific budgetary commitments and maybe we'll have a recovery procedure that is uh, more automatic and uh, more, uh, yeah, more quicker to put into place than the recovery procedure that we have in the commission, in the cohesion fund uh, policy, which is quite slow and it is, I mean, it has never been used net corrections in, in cohesion policy funds, so it's not very, very, very effective. But also it's a bit, it's a bit problematic that we don't have the general provision for the commission to, to, to do the recoveries. And just one other thing to say, I mean, that, that's the thing that it's a bit worrying for me. The good thing is that I think the Commission has very much understood that we, we have to focus on this rule of law country-specific recommendations. So the member states that have received country-specific recommendations related with rule of law, the Commission has explicitly asked them to do uh, progress on that, and that's very, very good. Now, when it comes to, to rule of law, Ivana, I mean, there's, 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 there are concerns, there are questions. I mean, there's also the issue of, of Article 7 procedures. Do you, how do you see this tying into this overall landscape that we're looking at in COVID recovery? Um, well, we, we will actually see uh, how this will uh, function in practice and uh, uh, I'm sure that the Commission will find uh, a solution also for this uh, recovery uh, elements, which are definitely not completely defined, but somehow in the, in the nature of the Recovery and Resilience Fund, we, we can see a potential solution because basically member states will receive funds based on the achievement of the milestones and targets and respect of the conditionalities among uh, which are also uh, conditionalities related to the rule of law and as I said connection with, with the reforms which are also connected with the rule of law so basically uh, if uh, milestones and targets are not achieved then uh, member state will not receive funding and if uh, it is achieved of course they will uh, receive uh, fu funding which are which are requested so somehow with this recovery th there is even no this re retroactive uh, perspective uh, uh, because it is simply based on the analysis uh, uh, the solution will be that the, the, the money will not be disbursed um, even though mm, probably uh, costs uh, appeared in, in the practice uh, uh, during the implementation. So uh, we will see, uh, and of course we are all uh, working on uh, control mechanisms uh, to implement uh, all these elements. 
Thank you. Well, let's now, I mean, we've talked, I think, a lot about uh, the fun, the, the problems that we possibly see in certain countries, the, the issues that we need to tie these, uh, the conditionalities that we need to tie to the funds. Let's now have a look for a while about the financing um, of the funds, because, of course, it, it doesn't all just come from the Commission's own pot. Um, and I wanted to ask and get into the questions about innovative financing and how that is going to work. Um, one of the questions is, how to make sure that investors who are going to buy the EU bonds feel confident and have uh, trust in, in what they're buying into. Um, let me ask Luke uh, a specific question regarding um, the EU bilateral treaties that are now terminated. Do, how, how, with the absence of that, does one encourage trust in investors? Yeah, as you may know, the EU has some experience in terms of borrowing uh, from the market. It was, of course, on a much lower scale, but it has been happening for, for years, uh, including during the previous uh, great financial crisis. Uh, the EU was very instrumental in putting together uh, rescue funds for a number of countries in the absence of other instruments. And uh, the borrowing has continued for a number of activities, such as macro financial assistance to, to third countries. So there is some experience of that at EU level. And now we have seen a very positive and encouraging experience over the last uh, year or so through the creation of a so-called SHOW uh, instrument. Uh, the SHOW instrument was set up to support national short-time work schemes to protect jobs and avoid uh, the destruction of employment. And it has proven extremely effective and you may have followed uh, the creation of show in record time again, and we're talking last spring in a matter of weeks, and the instrument was operational uh, as of uh, the end of this summer. And already 19 member states, I believe, have benefited from it. Close to 100 billion, around uh, 90 plus billion, have been borrowed and, and, and mobilized uh, uh, for the sake of, uh, of supporting uh, member states uh, national instruments and these are this is money raised on the markets pass on to the member states and and this different uh, show uh, raising of money uh, has been has been a success uh, from the point of view of uh, let's say an investing uh, strategy so uh, what is being set up now uh, is a similar way of, of proceeding as you know uh, the commission uh, will only be able to start borrowing in the context of next generation eu once the so-called own resources decision will have been ratified by all uh, member states this is in the process of happening but it's not yet done uh, so we we need to wait for this uh, final decision to be ratified to start the borrowing but we are hopeful uh, uh, that this will go fine. And we are also very much encouraged by the, the experience of a short program over the last year. Thank you. Anna, let me turn to you then and ask, what is it that investors would like to see? I mean, post-termination post of the intra-EU bilateral treaties. So uh, is it that reinstatement of the bilateral treaties or is there some other mechanisms that you would like to see the Commission putting into place to, to create security? Um, well, yes, in fact, um, the, the, the BITs were terminated last year, but um, even before when they existed, that hasn't prevented some member states from discriminating uh, a host, uh, sorry, an international investor 
um, compared to the domestic one. In fact, in the case at hand with the Banco Espiritu Santo and Novo Banco, the only impacted bonds notes that were um, trapped um, were uh, notes hold, held by um, by um, international investors, not Portuguese, um, and that those notes were subject to Portuguese law, and that's why they've been able to, um, you know, delay the proceedings in Portugal for so long. So, um, also, I wanted to, to 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 mention that what is important is to have reassurances. Um, and clearly, the termination of the BITs is not a good, a good sign either, because it means that uh, this discrimination can occur um, with no warranty. So uh, overall, it's not good for legal certainty uh, from investor side. I think the fact that the sure bonds have been largely or partially a success so far, although there are a bit some question marks on, 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 the, on the future um, uh, amounts, but the scale of the RRF is, is significantly higher. Um, so uh, we are not talking about 100 billion. Um, we are talking about much more. So we have serious concerns. I think uh, we as investors, in any case, we will be having serious doubts of, of investing uh, heavily unless a number of warranties are secure. And I think it's all in the interest of the EU and the EU Commission to ensure that this is being, um, you know, that there is a reform, there is a redress and, and um, there should be a commitment to ensure uh, that this happens. So, uh, yeah. Luke, did you want to react to that? No, no. I, I, I mean, I, I mentioned the point uh, about show and the fact that it, we're talking uh, close to 100 billion over one year. So it, it shows the amount of money and, and for uh, the next generation EU program, this will be over six years indeed. So we are reaching this kind of uh, cruising speed. Uh, as I said, the conditions for the borrowing are not yet in place. Uh, it will depend on the own resources uh, decision being ratified. And we are very much inviting all member states to, to proceed uh, rapidly. And as I said, this is in the process of happening. Ilalia, let me return to you to get your thoughts on these sorts of ideas. I mean, can you uh, envisage what sort of assurances need to be given to investors um, you know, to, to encourage them to actually buy into the EU bonds? Well, I mean, to be honest, I'm not an expert on, on, on this side of the RRF. So I, I, I tend to work more on the management of the EU funds than on, on the borrowing part of, of the EU funds. The only thing I can say is that we, I mean, from an outsider perspective, of course, that's the third novelty of RRF, actually. We're talking about these two novelties, the fact that we are trying to link investment with reforms, the fact that we are using a different delivery system. And the third big novelty is that, that the Commission is going to borrow much more money than before. I mean, as Luke said, uh, it's not the first time that the Commission did this. There are, there are borrowing and lending operations for a long time. But for the, uh, until now, they have been a much smaller size and, and they have been always used uh, through back-to-back -back loans. That means that, that, that there has not been much strategy in terms of how to borrow the money and and and. and where to borrow, to which investors to borrow the money. So now we are going to a different scale and a different strategy of, of borrowing for the Commission. But I cannot, I cannot enter into the specific details because it's not my field of expertise, actually. Okay, thank you very much. Natalie, let me put you a question here from uh, one of our audience members, Matteo Vespa, is asking, how will the Commission ensure civil society is involved as prescribed in the regulation? 
very interesting question, but I guess you're, you're referring now to the Recovery and Resilience Facility Regulation, yes? Yes. Okay, so I, I mean, I'm not directly in charge, but what I can respond to this is that um, the involvement is ensured at member states' levels in the preparation and in the implementation of the National Recovery and Resilience Facility. Uh, at European level, at the same time, you have seen that we have now launched the conference uh, on the future of Europe, which is really creating a huge platform and associating the civil society to the reforms and giving the possibility of everyone to provide input and uh, to launch different areas of reflection. Uh, so I would see the possibility to act for the civil society at two levels at member states levels in the context of the preparation and implementation of the national recovery and resilience plans and at European level, both through the direct access uh, to the European institution and the possibility to send uh, some questions and uh, uh, have some exchanges and through the conference on the future of Europe. Thank you very much. Um, um, Ivana, let me church, Ivana, let me ask you, um, how can the RRF uh, rebalance the EU's cohesion further to the COVID crisis, increasing the gap between countries? I mean, we, we've seen the impact of the pandemic. It really has been damaging. So what, what exactly can the RRF, RRF rebalance? Uh, this is very, very interesting question because this is something that we also uh, touch upon in our opinion and we said that distribution of funds when we, when we look in, into the allocation of RRF, uh, almost 75%, actually two-thirds of the, of the total amount goes to uh, the member states uh, which uh, uh, GDP is uh, higher than 90% of uh, EU average. Uh, so basically cohesion countries will get, of course, again, substantial amount also from RRF, but also the most developed countries will uh, receive additional funding. Uh, this is why we highlighted the need for this complementarity and synergy, because cohesion countries will, of course, at the same time, receive uh, additional amounts from the cohesion uh, policy. So ESI funds are secured in uh, MFF 21-27, and uh, because of that, they will together with RRF uh, have almost double funding in, in, in some cases. And uh, this uh, together, so cohesion policy together with RRF in cohesion uh, country can uh, make a difference and change in a way that they will be supported heavily, even though the distribution of RRF is not like equally in terms of, of, of level of development, but together with cohesion uh, policy, cohesion countries will be well supported. And now the question is, of course, as I said at the beginning, absorption. Uh, because many of them are, are still struggling with absorption of, of the envelope from 2014-20. Uh, and uh, now on top of that, they are receiving new one. On top of that, uh, there is this need uh, for speed uh, for RRF because we have only six years, as we said. Uh, so everything is now uh, uh, mixed together and uh, there is a problem 
challenge actually which we also highlighted that maybe ready to go projects uh, which could be financed from the cohesion policy will now move to RRF and then we will again have bottlenecks with the cohesion policy and low absorption of the cohesion policy in the period 21-27 but we definitely don't want to happen. So uh, because of that, uh, administrative capacity will be really, really crucial and uh, uh, invest uh, in uh, project preparation also and uh, uh, somehow commission with the uh, technical assistance which is envisaged should also support this and, and uh, think about uh, these elements. Thank you. Luke, same question to you um, about what the RF can do to rebalance cohesion post-COVID. And I think that ties in quite nicely to a question from our audience member, which is asking, what can the EU do for the member states to really include local and regional authorities in the implementation of the RF? No, thanks for that. In, indeed, uh, you may remember uh, last year when the regulation was set up, there was a lot of discussion about the allocation key and how the money would be uh, distributed uh, across countries. And, and the way it was done allows for to make sure that countries which were most hit by the crisis will, in effect, uh, benefit most from, uh, from the, the, the tool. Um, as you know, I mean, the COVID crisis was a shock to everyone. Everybody was impacted, but some were more impacted than others due to the exposure to the pandemic, but also to their economic structures and the importance of the service sector and the tourism sector in particular. And as I said, these countries will be able to bounce back better thanks to the recovery and resilience facility. In the Commission, we produced a macroeconomic simulation of a potential impact of the RRF, and we see a positive impact for everyone, uh, also thanks to the positive spillovers across economies, uh, but we see a, a stronger impact for countries which were lagging behind. So there is definitely a, a boost to cohesion, thanks to the recovery and resilience facility. And we, by the way, also see a positive impact for countries which have a higher uh, debt level to G debt to GDP level. Uh, so in a way, uh, the RRF is also helpful to reduce vulnerabilities uh, ac across across Europe. Uh, now, of course, these were macroeconomic simulation. Everything depends on the quality of what is being put forward, uh, and we will have to analyze in detail uh, the potential impact of uh, the plans that are being put forward. Uh, you're right to say that a key uh, success criterion will be the ownership and, and the involvement of actors uh, locally, regionally, at national level. The Commission has insisted a lot on that in the preparation. Member states are asked to uh, report on how they have involved uh, stakeholders uh, in their plans. So this is also an aspect we will be looking at. And it is very important that this partnership continues in the delivery phase. Thank you. Anna, let me come to you and ask you what sort of tools you think may, may or what sort of results may come out of, uh, of, out of the RF in terms of balancing differences between different regions and areas in the European Union. Well, if I may, I just might want to uh, add um, one comment to what uh, Luke just said, which is um, obviously um, civil society should be involved, but 
definitely the, the investment side of the whole project. So investors should be also be taken into account and investors' interest should be taken into account. Um, so, so hopefully there is a much, maybe much more uh, integration of uh, investors' um, you know, key demands um, uh, going forward, in particular uh, on the topics we discussed earlier on, on the rule of law, legal certainty, ensuring uh, judiciary, um, you know, legal proceedings are taking place on a, on a timely manner. And I also wanted to raise one comment uh, regarding the technical support instrument that Natalie mentioned earlier on, uh, in case I don't have the chance to, to raise it, which is, um, um, is there any way that through the technical support instrument, um, the Commission could potentially try to help member states to sort out some difficulties maybe in, 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 in ensuring some reforms that to date hasn't occurred or haven't occurred? So this is, uh, I'm not answering your question, <laughs> Jennifer, I, I, I understand, but I, uh, this is something that it's quite important for me uh, to, 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 to learn from both, um, particularly from, from Natalie, um, as to how potentially this technical support instrument could be, could be leveraged and used to solve those. Uh, See, so was mentioning some examples in other member states uh, where have been subject to recommendations. Um, also in judiciary uh, uh, and administrative reforms. But uh, yeah, so I wanted to know whether, you know, what's the role of this technical support instrument in potentially solving the issue we have at hand with the politicization of the, of the Portuguese uh, judicial system, for example. Thank you. Natalie, do you want to briefly respond to that before I come back to the question of cohesion? Yes, of course. And uh, thank you, Anna, for asking this question. Well, we are precisely intervening uh, to bring support to the member state for them to launch really growth-enhancing measures and, and uh, profound reforms. So we have already uh, supported member states for bringing forward changes in the organization of the judicial system. Uh, we can intervene in the area of uh, public administration. Uh, we have uh, the possibility to provide direct technical assistance advice to the member states, we can organize dialogues with them, we can organize trainings with them. Last week uh, we have launched a uh, common project for a green uh, budgeting training with the participation of 18 member states, so we can have support measures addressed at one member state or support measures addressed at a various um, group of uh, member states and it works quite effectively. We have the possibility to conduct annual projects, but we're also launching more and more multi-annual projects. And all this, of course, can be linked with the implementation of the recovery and resilience facilities. So we provide assistance to the member state to meet, for example, the green and digital objectives of the recovery and resilience facility, but also to meet other parts of these plans and to facilitate their implementation. So the response to Anna is, yes, we can. And we do act upon the initiative of the member states, but also in the preparation of the technical support instrument 2022, we are going to present to the member states a selection of projects, which we are going to call uh, the flagship projects. And then it will be up to the member states to decide, of course, if they will if they wish to make use of this offer of specific support. And Natalie, just from my side, a quick follow-up question, if I may. Um, what is the level of oversight from the European Parliament or other bodies that might be involved? 
Are you now referring to the Recovering Resilience Facility or to the Technical Support Instrument? <laughs> oh, gosh, I've lost my thought. Uh, the Recovery <laughs> <laughs> So I will let uh, Luke respond to that one. Yeah. No, so uh, I, th I think a great asset of the Recovery and Resilience Facility is that it is a community-based instrument. It was set up within the framework of the EU institutions. Uh, and this is perhaps a lesson we've learned from, from past experiences as well. And this has allowed uh, the Parliament uh, to be the co-legislator on, on the regulation. And indeed, as I mentioned, the regulation was significantly developed uh, throughout the autumn, also in light of the opinion of the Court of Auditors. And it entered into force only three months ago, uh, uh, mid-February. Uh, but this has uh, the imprint of both the Parliament and the Council. And I think this is also important in terms of uh, ownership and delivery, and certainly in terms of transparency and scrutiny for uh, the operation. And by the way, it gives also the full right to other actors, such as the Court of Auditors, uh, the EU Anti-Fraud Office, uh, the European Public Prosecutor Office, to uh, get into the delivery mode uh, alongside the Commission. So th this is, I think, a very important guarantee uh, for the success of, of the plan. Now, uh, in the delivery of uh, the facility, there will be different uh, regular moments. Uh, there is a process agreed with the Parliament, uh, recovery and resilience dialogue, uh, to which the Commission is committed. And there will be regular moments also of, of uh, taking stock. So there will be, there will be constant exchange of information and, and involvement. Uh, for, for now, we are in the phase of assessing, receiving, and soon assessing the plan. And, and hopefully this will move fast so that the uh, first uh, proposal for decision from the Commission will come uh, before the summer. Thank you. Sorry, I'm getting confused between which Commission representative represents which area. Um, Ivana, let me turn to you now and ask about the use of funds. And Ulali, I want to bring you in on this as well. So talk a little bit about how to ensure that funds are implemented in a transparent way. Uh, yes, this is, of course, very important. <laughs> yes, thank you. Uh, this is, of course, very important. And uh, so first step is definitely adoption of the plans. And in the plans, many things have to be defined and described. Uh, we see that in the assessment criteria, which are in the regulation, and the commission will assess uh, internal control system in the member states and also uh, monitoring and implementation system. And uh, this is, of course, something what uh, has to ensure proper uh, spending and transparency of the spending. Uh, so we have like uh, several layers of monitoring and controls. Uh, uh, first one is at the level of the member states. Uh, good is that they will use existing structures, so we, we don't have time to develop completely new structures to deal with the uh, RRF, with RR uh, funding. Uh, but um, of course, that uh, these structures will have to be uh, analyzed, uh, that we can really say that uh, member state is ensuring proper spending and uh, uh, also transparent uh, spending and use of the recovery and resilience uh, resources. Uh, then uh, is of course European Commission, so they will uh, uh, monitor and control uh, what is going on at the level of the member states, and then 
uh, European Court of Auditors, we will also uh, uh, do our job. And our first step is uh, this uh, auditing of uh, preparation, uh, actually commission assessment of the preparation of the national recovery and resilience plans. And then, of course, we will uh, audit uh, other processes and uh, see if really milestones and targets uh, are achieved, if what is said in the paper really happened in the practice. Uh, and as Luke said, uh, we will also have this oversight and monitoring from the from other institutions, uh, from the European Parliament especially, because this uh, uh, every two months dialogue, uh, which is envisaged, will be very open, trans transparent, and everybody will be able to ask uh, what they want, what they need, additional information if they need, so everything will be discussed thoroughly. So the whole process, even though everything has to be done very quickly, will be uh, carefully monitored in order to ensure uh, legal and regular uh, spending and transparent spending uh, all over the Europe. Thank you. Eulalia, same question to you, um, just to reflect on, on how we need to be transparent about how funds are spent in order to reassure trust in the public as much as anything else. Yeah, I will, I will follow up uh, from what Ivana has said. I think I agree uh, in all of it. I, I just wanted maybe to make three points on that. The first is that, uh, of course, the, the, the system will be, uh, we'll, we will have to spend the money quicker than, than in, in cohesion policy funding. As in cohesion policy funding, there is this generic obligation of member states to identify, prevent, identify and detect fraud. So they will have to put into place anti-fraud measures. But if we want to go quicker, these anti-fraud measures have to be specifically cost effective this time, meaning that we don't have to create a lot of burden, a lot of controls and a lot of you know, lengthy process at the national level. And in this respect, there are two things that are very cost effective to detect fraud. One is the use of data analytic tools big databases that allows the management authorities to flag the risky projects, the projects in which there is some indicator that there might be some fraud. And the other one is transparency and disclosure of information so that everybody can know where the money goes, everybody meaning civil society, journalists, individual persons, and then everybody can track a bit where the money goes. In these two things, I think that the, the commission has to be much more, I mean, it has to be specifically um with member states uh, on the use on data analytic tools and the commission uh, has offered or will offer a, a specific single data analytic tool for all member states the best would be that all member states use this single data analytic tool because it's a data analytic tool that allows to merge information from all member states and that facilitates even more the, the identification of, of cases of fraud. But if this is not the case, at least member states have to put into place this type of uh, data analytic uh, instruments. And on disclosure, I think it's a bit surprising that the obligations of disclosure for the facility are not as high as for co uh, cohesion policy funds, for instance. In cohesion policy funds, member states are obliged to put a website, a public website, all the operations that have been financed by, by, by cohesion policy funds. And this is not the case for the facility. If you look at the, at the regulation, the, you know, the article about publicity and, and transparency, it's more about giving visibility to the EU funding and you know, showing that, uh, that, 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 that the RF has been used, 
but there is no specific obligation for member states to put a list of all operations financed by the facility. There is obligation to transmit this information at the EU level for the purpose of controls and audits, but not to put it uh, to put it uh, open to to all of, of all the people. And third point, maybe uh, difference contrary to what happens with the cohesion policy funding, there will be less reporting obligations, meaning that the member states will have to report less. The, the detail of reporting it will be uh, less less important than for cohesion policy funding so they will have to report of course on milestone on targets they will have to do twice per year on a, a declaration of management and a, you know a list of the audits they have done but in general terms the eu level we have much less information of where where the the, the money goes and particularly there will not be this, this specific obligation to report on large irregularities to OLAF. And that means that we need more investigative capacity at the EU level because there will be less flow of information coming from member states to the EU level. If we want to detect fraud at the EU level, we have to reinforce OLAF and we have to reinforce EPO also, uh, which are the two institutions in charge of uh, investigating this, kind, this type of, of problems. Thank you. Natalie, may I turn now to you just to get your wrap-up thoughts as well as we're, we're approaching the end of our discussion. Well, thank you very much, Jennifer. I think all this is, is very interesting and just I, I wanted to rebound on what Alalia said, but I, I guess uh, Luke will, uh, will want to say more. I mean, there are differences certainly in terms of the drafting and the organization of the uh, recovering resilience facility regulation compared to the uh, national, uh, the, the, the cohesion, the re regional uh, instruments and, and funds. But do not forget the major innovation that was set by the recovery and resilience facility, which is that the advancement of the funds is going to be performance based and is going to depend on the member state meeting uh, qualitative milestones and quantitative targets. And I do believe that there is going to be a lot of transparency. And I think that the regular control of the European Parliament through the regular debate is going to provide to be a very strong asset. And I should remind that uh, there is a, a specific working group which has been set up in between the Economic and Monetary Affairs Committee and the Budgetary Committee of the European Parliament. So there is going to be a very, very strong control on uh, the budgetary side of uh, the work. Now, uh, from what I am concerned, all that I can say is just reiterate that uh, the technical support instrument can come in support to the reforms that are going to be undertaken by the member states to bring growth. I did not yet have the opportunity to say a quick word on what is going to be absolutely key to recovery and resilience, which is the quality of public administrations in Europe. We have published a um, document a few weeks ago, a staff working document on uh, a modern public administration there are going to be discussions in the context of a summit organized in uh, Portugal by the presidency in the months of June. So I really see the issue of the quality, the efficiency, the modernization of uh, public administration and governance at the, at the center, at the core, around which we can build all the growth enhancing reforms and then all the measures within the recovery and resilience facility 
that are going to support the twin transition, the green and digital transition, and bring back growth in Europe, but a growth that is going to be directed at every single region and at every single actor, be it a company or be it a private citizen. This growth must be absolutely inclusive. Thank you. Thank you. Ivana, can I ask you for a very brief 30 seconds, one minute wrap up? I know you've uh, covered most of the ground already. Yes, thank you very much. Uh, I, I, I will refer a little bit on, on this transparency again. Uh, as Eulalia said, uh, not many things are in the RRF regulation, but they, they are in the financial regulation. And the fact that Recovery and Resilience Fund is performance instrument doesn't mean that basic uh, uh, financial uh, management uh, and control principles uh, doesn't need to have to be respected. So uh, we, we, we really have to think about that and uh, how to make uh, as much as possible uh, uh, information public, so available to everybody, because this is then the right way how to, to protect, the how to protect financial interest of the European Union because if everything is visible then civil societies uh, citizens will be able to spot uh, irregularities mistakes fraud potential corruption conflict of interest and report on this so this is transparency is uh, indeed extremely important and uh, I, I hope that actually member states will follow the, the the principles which they already apply in their budget and also also for SE funds and that they will that we will not go step backward in, in in use of recovery and resilience funds. So definitely this is new modern instruments, uh, performance oriented, but basic principles must be respected. And uh, I'm sure that we all together will be able to ensure this and uh, uh, be transparent and open to everybody. Thank you. Uh, Luke, uh, can I turn for your wrap-up thoughts, perhaps even maybe just give us a, a timeline view for the rest of the year, what's coming up, uh, just as your final thoughts, please. No, th thanks a lot. Uh, maybe a, a few thoughts to conclude. First, to, to, to say that uh, these are early days for the recovery and resilience facility. Yeah? Uh, so everything we discussed uh, today uh, is, is very timely and, and indeed will be at the core of our work for the coming uh, months and, and years. Uh, second thought is really to insist again on the, the new nature of the instrument, the performance-based nature of this instrument. Um, there is an excellent paper by Olaya which gives a lot of more details, but uh, what I want to say about, uh, about this instrument is that uh, what is important to bear in mind is that the member states are the beneficiaries of a fund. So it is member states' money that will cover the detailed investment and reforms on the ground, but as such, the beneficiaries of the facility are the member states, and this explains uh, the whole delivery mode that was uh, foreseen in the regulation. Uh, and that's important to, to reflect, bear in mind, and, and uh, incorporate in our work. Uh, a third remark is that, as we discussed, uh, it is very good that the RF regulation is anchored on the EU treaty, uh, that the delivery mode is totally shaped by EU rules, Ivana just mentioned the financial regulation, and this is a strong uh, guarantee for uh, the sound management of, of the facility. Uh, 
And, and the last remark is that, uh, of course, it is partly a new venture for, for all of us to engage in this facility. Uh, and, and it will mean different things for different countries. And, and that is normal because priorities differ. So we will have to become much more granular, much more case by case. We will also need to develop new interactions, new partnerships based on existing ones with actors on the ground. And, and it all depends uh, on us to, to make it a success. Uh, but uh, I would be confident that this happens. In terms of timeline, as I said, uh, we are reviewing uh, the plans that have been uh, put forward already. Um, if my counting is correct, uh, 18 plans have come in, more to come in the coming weeks and months. Uh, the Commission has about two months to uh, assess these plans, then it will be for decision within one month by the Council. So you can see a number of, of decisions happening uh, before, certainly, definitely before the summer break, uh, and then implementation will start. So uh, things are moving fast. Just to recall, the regulation entered into force three months ago. Huh? So the, the work is going at full speed, and, and uh, it will continue uh, at that pace, I assume, in the coming months. Thank you. Thank you, Luke. Don't envy you your workload over the next few months as well. Um, finally, Anna, uh, your thoughts on what you've heard today. Um, give us your, your remarks before we wrap up. Yes. Um, so, um, starting from the beginning, clearly, uh, this is about reforms and investment. And obviously, from the investor point of view, for us, uh, what we would like um, is to have redress uh, by EU member states, sorry, reforms by EU member states as a, as a condition of receipt of EU recovery funds, uh, particularly of the judiciary. Uh, we would like respect for the rule of law in member states, and particularly uh, not to be influenced by, by um, politics or politicians. Um, we would like to have redress for uh, past investors, um, and in our case, you know, we've been waiting for the last six years with absolutely no um, um, information as to when this will be solved. And finally, we need reassurances for uh, the future investors and for us to be able to be investing uh, in the future RRF uh, bonds. Um, uh, we need to have those reassurances on legal certainty, rule of law that we mentioned earlier on. So those are for us the most important uh, topics, reforms, respect for rule of law, redress and reassurances. Thank you. Thank you, Anna. And thank you indeed, ladies and gentlemen, all of you for your points and your thoughts. And thank you to the audience for so many questions. We couldn't possibly get to all of them, ranging from things like environmental harm to unemployment policy. It's a really vast topic that we can't quite squeeze into just one hour and a quarter. But thank you very much for your attention and your views. Remember, please do keep the conversation going using the hashtag EA Debates. Uh, we've been discussing the recovery and resilience facility. Thank you to Recover Portugal for supporting us today, but also keep an eye out as there will be several more Euroactive debates on all the topics that matter to you in the coming days.